welcome to episode three, or is it episode four? It's actually episode four because we had a preview. It's game day three of Ness and Dormer's deep dive into Euro 88. I'm Gary Naylor and I'm joined by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hi, Gary. And Martin Ramsey. Hello, Martin. Hi, Gary. Hi, Rob. Good to be back. Yeah. And we're looking at the final day of group stages of Euro 88 in West Germany, a time when matches were played simultaneously in the groups, um, which led to an interesting decision by the BBC that we'll address a little mm. later. So to look at Group A, Martin, what was the position going into the final group matches? Uh, it was tight, as you would always expect with... Um these kind of uh, groups and three teams really in contention. Denmark were sad and dejected and already home, as you said. So um, Italy, with them in mind, were pretty much expected to do the biz. They had three points, West Germany had three points and Spain had two, meaning really that the Spain knew, I think, deep down, that they, they had to go and beat West Germany. Um that the likelihood is Italy would win, um, and therefore that 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 West Germany Spain game became the um, the, the, the kind of knockout, and a, a point would would probably see West Germany through. Um, Rob, what were the teams that night? Yeah, I do that. Just a bit of context, of course. Four years earlier, Spain and West Germany found themselves in almost identical position. Mm. Uh, Spain needed to win, West Germany needed to draw, and Antonio Masella scored a 90th minute winner for Spain. Like and that's in that time, genuinely shocking for us, Germany not to make the semis, but anyway, the teams. So, Germany had one change from the Denmark win, which was Borovka for Buchwald in defense. Buchwald was injured, but what's really interesting is they switched Andreas Bremer to right back. And, and I've said this before, it's quite hard working out the formations in this tournament. I should say, we're only watching highlights, not full games, and also. Because the pitch quality isn't great, sometimes you can't see numbers. But what I think they did, they put uh, Rolf on Lauge in the Denmark game, and I'm pretty sure they did. They moved Bremer across because Michel played from the right for Spade. So Rolf almost played a different game. So they almost played a 4 3 2 with a sweeper, a sweeping our old friend Hergett. And Rolf was just a spare man who marked Michel, just followed him to your number 20s um, and did a very good job. So yeah, that, that was kind of interesting. Uh, and Spain had a couple of changes, which was Camacho was back after. Buggering his shoulder, trying to rugby tackle Previn Elkiar. Uh, he replaced Soler in defence. And um, the other one was Martin Vazquez, who was quite a promising young player. Came in for, uh, was it Gallego or Godillo? I always mix them up. One or the other. Let me just check. Um, it was for Gallego in the field. So, yes. And Spain's, I know I keep going, but it's quite boring. But Spain's formation is really interesting as well, because it's almost like a th- it's almost like a Pep Guardiola 3-2-3-2, except he plays 3-2-4-1. So they've got one centre-back, two kind of half full-backs, half centre-backs, and another guy just in front. Three. Well, it's interesting to me, but anyway. I mean, there was a lot of talk about Mitchell, wasn't there, uh, at this? I mean, they, they yeah, were talking about Buteregueno was saying he's our main man. And the Germans like nothing more than having to man-mark a number 10, don't they? So it's no surprise that they switched a bit of formation uh, in response to uh, Spain's Spain's team. Um, I mean, Mitchell was the, you know, the star player in the first game, wasn't he? Um, he's not remembered as one of the all-time kind of great to Spanish football, although he's he's certainly uh, remembered as a, a playmaker, isn't he? But I mean, was that 
commonplace for Germany. My memory is that Germany did switch players around according to the opposition more than perhaps most international teams. Absolutely. I actually called Chris Freddy, the the oracle on particularly World Cups, but all international football in the 20th century, because I wanted to ask him about this. How common was it? Obviously, you saw it in Serie A quite a lot, pre-back pass law. They would target the main player. Obviously, Gentile did it for them. But he said, yeah, probably West Germany did it more than anyone. So, Mateus was on Maradona in 86 in the final. Beckenbauer was sort of on Bobby Charlton in 66, apparently, although I've never been able to watch the full game. And then in this tournament, Rolf, who I'd never heard of, to be honest, does it on Laudrup and particularly on Michel. So, yeah. And Michel was was their most creative player by a mile. There had been talk before the tournament about his massive half a million a year contract. Can you ever imagine? Um, so, yes. But it's the interesting thing is because Michel played from the right, they kind of don't have a left back in their team. They sort of just wing it a bit between Rolf and Kolo, who's the left-sided centre-back. It's really, it's really interesting. Well, it's interesting to me. I keep needing me to say that. But yes, essentially, they did it a lot and it worked. Absolutely. This was kind of probably the last golden era of man marking, I guess, if golden is the right word. Um, my, my, well, yes. my, fa- my father always says that in 1970, he always says, if you watch Helmut Schoen in the quarterfinal in 1970, I think Bobby Charlton comes off. And he so said, you can see Schoen shouting at Beckenbauer, moving his arm like he's doing the sprinkler dance, telling Beckenbauer to go forward, go forward, because... Beckenbauer's creativity was uh, was subsumed into a defensive duties while Charlton was on the field. And then, of course, um, Beckenbauer, the game changes. Uh, but that's a, a different tournament where Beckenbauer is on the sidelines here. He's the manager of West Germany. And um, Martin, do you want to tell us a little of how the match played out? Yeah, uh, well, Spain make the early kind of run in, as you would expect. They need to do the best. They go close. Um, Vasquez nearly scores with a kind of cross-come shot, shall we say. I mean, it, it, it was uh, a wee bit closer than I think Emil uh, imagined that it would be. Um, and then very close, actually, with a um, kind of ghosted in at the back post. Um, but it, it just couldn't quite get the, 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 the reach on it. You'll correct me if I'm... Um, too young to remember where the laws of the game were at the time. Zubi Zareta, lucky to stay on the pitch coming out of the box and definitely, definitely handball on the ball outside the box just away from... Um, yeah. from and do you, do you know what's interesting about that? Is there's no massive protest or yeah. uproar in the commentary. I'm pretty sure in those days it was just a yellow card because I remember Bruce Grobler doing it a couple of times and getting yellow cards and yeah. there was a, a bit like the cricket at Lords this summer. There was outrage at the kind of morality or what there was, there was outrage at the laws essentially because and obviously subsequently it would become a red card but no i think that was fair enough at the I, time yeah i suspect it wasn't even a completely cheap yeah i i suspect it wasn't even a guaranteed yellow in those days there's 20 minutes does he get booked? i think he does yeah he just he just doesn't see red they get a free kick and bremer does what he does which is blast it against the wall and hope for the best <laughs> Well, you buy you buy a ticket, as we'll see two years later. Um, now, how often does this happen in the tournament? Um, we talked about Mancini a while ago um, when Italy came in, but Rudy Voller is under serious, serious pressure. He is not well-loved, um, but the Kaiser says if Rudy wants to play, he plays, um, mm. and he does, and it's his pal that, that helps him out. Brilliant work by Klinsman, gets the ball under control, drives in, uh, it's, it's a just such a gorgeous pass and and falls able just to escape 
and just get that that sight on goal, and that's really all he needs. He drills it um, into the bottom corner. And again, I think I said this before, but just looking at this West German team, it is the makings of what what comes next. This understanding between those two, the intelligence, the movement between those two, um, and he's 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 often often running. Um, uh, I, I guess. Um, and then in the second half, or just after the second half, it's 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 all done, and it's another volley goal. And outside of his foot, that he kind of curls around, but this is all all Lothar Matthias just takes the ball from deep and just drives at the Spanish team right into the heart of defence. He kind of getting up just slightly out of control, um, but he's got the the presence of mind just to what back heel it back into the the, the, the path of Volo who steadies himself. And as I said, it's just a kind of impudent finish. Um but here's Mateus again, another player who was workman like you talked about man Mark mm. and Maradona. He's a spoiler. He is criticized um in in Germany um for being a, a flat track bully effectively, uh, if the opposition's poor. Uh, if the opposition's weak, Matthias is good. If the opposition's good, Matthias is weak. Um, and here he is now just starting to become this this absolute presence, this machine. I'm very well aware as I look at the screen here that, that he's peering over Rob's um, right-hand shoulder. The <laughs> um, that, but that's, he... That's... That's more about the artwork than the man. I just, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Not that I didn't like him, but he's not my favourite player or anything. But yes, yeah. Um, Sorry, but 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 yeah. That that that's that's really that's really it. To be honest, Spain have another. I mean, Vasquez again from range, and now Germans are just they're, they're having goes from 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 all sorts. Really, there's so much confidence, so much freedom. Um, they're, they're absolutely super sure. Um, Here's a question for hmm. both of you. Again, it's a question of 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 um, perhaps my age, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, and I don't want to go Richard Kesia, but <laughs> they're, they're, I noticed that in this, this round of games and the, the, the previous round as well, there's a lot of long-range efforts going on, and that hmm. feels very jarring to the kind of modern eye where there'll be a tendency to walk the ball, to be patient, just find that space. Um, basically, can we create the easiest chance possible? Because, of course, you've got more chance of scoring. These things are flying in. They're not flying in, really. They're flying mm. quite often over and over the bar and very wide. But there's a lot of long-range efforts, and it just seems a lot more common in in that time than it, than it, than it does now. It, it, it feels alien. I'll be honest. I don't know if you you guys feel that while whilst watching these even these group I, games, but I'll let Gary talk because he's probably more likely to have a, a theory. But just to say that that really struck me during the Netherlands game against Ireland. The Netherlands yeah. is fucking yeah. shooting from everywhere, and what oh, well, I find interesting about that yeah. is that I'm, I'm pretty sure modern Dutch coaches don't like it. I know Van Hal basically almost banned people from shooting from distance when he was at United. Yeah. I get the impression Ten Hag doesn't, but and obviously some of their players justify it. Ronald Koeman. But others probably don't. But anyway, Gary, you, you, you're you better well, it, kind of spotting these patterns. Well, it, it is it is amazing when you when you see some of the extended highlights, just how many shots there are from distance. And when we're saying from distance, we're talking 25 yards and more. It's not 
kind of toe pokes from the edge of the area in the main. And they're missing by miles. You know, they, these are, are Gareth Southgate over the bar in Euro 96 levels of, of missing. Um, why they did it, well, it used to be at the start of a tournament, there'd be all the talk about the ball moving in the air. <laughs> that's, that's always what you've got with all tournaments. And if you could roll in a bit of, we're playing this match at altitude, as uh, often the case, you know, in the in the stream of tournaments that seem to be in, in Mexico and in indeed in one or two other places, then you've got this sort of narrative that runs in the background and you wonder how much that, is kind of reinforced by the players thinking I'll have a pop with this ball. It's going to sort of do a triple salco on its way to the keeper. Um, but um, no, I, I, it does seem it does seem strange. And yet, this match is is I wouldn't say typical, but this match is decided by two of the best assists you'll see mm. in international footballer. A deliciously weighted uh, pass from Klinsman, who who doesn't put it on a plate for Foller, but he certainly says now hit that into the opposite corner and as we've said Mateus surging run and back heel which says again to Vola put it in the other corner um so they clearly knew that that the assist which sets up the chance is is a, a viable option so quite wide players at the passing range of a of a um of a Koeman, uh so regularly has a, a pop from 30 yards uh, I, I I don't know but it is it does seem to be a trend, you know. Maybe, maybe listeners could enlighten us uh, there. But um, there were there were no stats at this time. You got nothing. You didn't get anything, even on uh, number of corners. There were no graphics in the, in the middle of the match. You had no real idea as to how many shots had been on target, how many saves, any of this kind of stuff when you're watching. And I wonder how the the players, whether they really knew. Um, if if they were if their shoot what their shooting percentages were and, and all of this of course no, it was a very not. anti kind of intellectual anti data period certainly in English football you know, you don't practice penalties because you you can't replicate what happens in the match and all of this kind of stuff was going on so I, it was probably said look if you get a sack of goal have a pop he's a foreign goalkeeper they can't save the ball can they and I guess all nations have variants on that um, which was laudably swept away in the 20th uh, 21st century but it was probably more commonplace than we'd like to admit in the in the 20th mm. yeah i think there's an element of data definitely i'm sure now there is data that shows where you shoot when you should shoot which player should shoot um and it was just everything was just a bit more freeform wasn't it i mean it always struck me when you see when you used to have what everyone's called net busters on sky sports or whatever and basically about 80% of the goals from the lower leagues were just some hairy-ass bastard rooting <laughs> off 30 yards. And, of course, it's, I'm not saying Euro 88 was the same thing, but there's an element of that that was just less sophistication compared to the Premier League now. I'm not saying it wasn't sophisticated because it was. You know, it's like I said, the tactics are really interesting. But I just think, yeah, coaching was not as strict or as... Um, yeah, there wasn't as much kind of micro it's detail. Described, yeah, it's, it's, it's that yeah. exactly what Rob, uh, what Gary said a minute ago. Actually, just that, um, yeah, shoot from this range, shoot from this area. Yeah. Um, they, they're weak here. Um, yeah, we'll maybe talk about the Dutch later because Cumin, when I was a kid, was the long range expert. Yeah. He was oh. your boy with a free kick for sure. Um, and especially when Pat Bonner's in goals, it's, it's always good to have a pop. You never know. What oh, um, um, Olaf Ton uh, was unlucky as well. They're 
West Germany really, really started to look very impressive. Bakero probably should have brought Spain back into the game. Close mm. range, good save from Emo. Um, Volon nearly gets a hat trick. It's a bit of a mess in the box. He just doesn't quite have the, um, just not quite in position to get uh, enough kind of strength on on the header. I think, um, but he'll he'll settle for two, especially the run that he was that he was on and the 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 clouds over him. Um, and how significant is that? Not obviously for this tournament. Spoiler alert! But for for what happens in 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 two years, yeah. especially with those that that understanding the, the the chemistry that's so important in international football, but so rare because you you don't have a lot of time as a coach to to create that and to to, to work with that. You you really are hoping that you just you find a blend and they they have here. I think that that's very obvious. They have a solution. Um, that interestingly, the next team that we're going to talk about with two years in mind really don't actually. And yeah. um, but West Germany are through and um, home crowd and and, and and all of that. But scary stuff at the start. Uh, but once once Fowler got that um, got that monk off his back, away they went. So Rob, we move to the other game in the group, which is uh, Italy uh, against the vanquished Danes. Um, do you want to set us up with the teams there? Yeah, so Italy, same again. Um, no change at all. Uh, Zenga, Bergami, Ferry, Baresi, Maldini, Donadoni, Di Napoli, Giannini, Ancelotti, Mancini, Viali. I mean, Denmark, said, are gone. So they basically made four changes. Um, Elkia was injured, never played again. Lerby, I don't think he played again. Sieverbeck went out. They brought in a few younger players. John Jensen, who we know, <clears throat> Per Freeman, Christensen, John Eriksson, which is a sad story. He's the guy who scored against Germany in 86, but died very young through some kind of particularly acute form of dementia. It's quite a sad story, but um, yeah, I mean, this game... So basically, they, they, I was trying to work out the permutation. The only way Italy can get in trouble is if they lose and... No, if they... Yeah, if Italy were to have lost and... Spain were to have got at least a point, then Italy could have been in trouble on goal difference. But it, everyone kind of knew Denmark were a broken team. It was the end of an era. Um, and yeah, it took a while, but it was pretty comfortable. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, I'll keep talking. Yeah. Um, so, like Martin said, Viali Mancini both started the tournament really promisingly, miss a blizzard of chances in this game. Um, some come through some slightly eccentric goalkeeping from uh, youngish Peter Schmeichel. Um, it's kind of intriguing watching a player who at the time was criticised for being a bit kind of flaky, but you know would become an all-time great, kind of looking for signs. And there was one when Mancini had a one-on-one and Schmeichel absolutely flies out of him and makes a really good save. It's not an amazing shot, but the, the, the speed with which he kind of pressures Mancini will become familiar. Um but Italy were kind of comfortable, missed a lot of chances. And then after about 60-odd minutes, uh, 65, maybe they brought on the old man out of belly uh, for Mancini. Um, and, yeah, I'll let, I'll let Martin pick it up from here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's instant. I mean, it's it, I think possibly his, his first touch. And it's Viali ah. that, that, that creates it. Yeah, Viali mm. does so much work down there and it's controlled and he doesn't fall. He controls it so well that he creates the space. But Schmeichel comes up and and, and does his thing. He's 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 big man, big um, figure, and Altabelli's got no time for that nonsense. He just um, 
put puts that away quite nicely. Sorry, it's, Rob. It's just a it's a classic fox in the box goal, isn't it? Yeah. Lovely uh, turn around Christensen. Um, it's just a yeah. It was his last goal for a clear. I think he's about thirty-two at this point. Um, yeah, just just watching it. You, it's just an expert at work, essentially. Yeah, what struck me is that you see the the young uh, Mancini coming off looking very disappointed with typical kind of Italian emotion in the in the face there, and Altobelli comes on. They're talking about him being, you know, this veteran of of sixty matches, thirty odd goals, but he's still only thirty-two. You know, he's not. He's not sort of, you know, pushing 40 or anything. And then he scores a goal, which I doubt whether Mancini could have scored it because it's the absolute classic goal poachers goal, as you've said, the fox in the box. What I liked about it is that he ran across the defender, the kind of thing that Gary Lineker always talks about and indeed did, which means he gets to the ball first. If Viali puts that ball in and Viali has a look, decides not to dive for the foul, has a look, knows that Altabelli is there, knows he's going to make that run. So if he gets to the ball first, then he is in control of the situation. He then has the, the technical skill to hold the ball up and the strength to take a buffeting from the defender, and then he lashes it home. Um, it looks like the kind of goal centre-forward score all day, every day, but it's actually technically and physically it's a superb goal. And to do it pretty much as soon as you come on, shows a class man and that's what you can do when you bring on a world cup winner mm, 27 yeah, seconds i think you've on was it yeah. just a really quick thing i've always wondered about this now altabelli has two touches so his first two touches of the game one to turn christian one score did he score with his first touch you mean that he couldn't miss once he... Uh, put no, no, no. I mean that it was his second touch, but it was his first set of touches. So people often talk about someone ah, scoring yeah. with their first touch, <laughs> when in yeah. fact it's their fourth. And I never... But I genuinely, I never know what to write about this if I'm doing a live game. So there's a famous... I know it's Man United example. Sorry, they're in my head. But there's a famous tight winning goal by Andy Cole against Spurs with his first touch, but it's kind of his third touch. It's all in yeah. one movement, and I never I, know whether that. Well, and I see it both ways, but I think, I think people touch it sounds ugly, yeah. doesn't it? People substitute touch for moment contribution. Contribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Opta would call that one touch in the box because I don't think they can tippy tappy tippy tappy tippy tappy. When they talk about touches in the box, they would they would I think make that ah, one. But nevertheless, that. that's interesting. I, 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 I heard that. them I heard them saying this at some point that 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 if you carry the ball and take a touch and then push it forward and then have another touch, I'm not sure what they do with that. But I definitely recall. Uh, hearing somewhere that Opta would would count that as a single kind of That's movement, a single phase yeah, of play, yeah, yeah. and call that one touch in the box. But actually, it's a very different skill that he executed as opposed to sort of running onto it and lashing it into the yeah, top exactly. corner. They're both difficult skills to to um, to pull off, but it is a very different skill. And you, you do see players sort of running onto the ball and hitting it first time. And when they make a, a good connection, it's one of the most spectacular sights in football. But this this was about, I know how to play. Uh, exactly. I know how to do centre-forward play. This, this Here, is my here's a piece of centre-forward play. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was different. Um, it's, it, it should have been 1-1, by the way. Bottlesinger makes a, a, a bit of a oh, catastrophe yeah. or something unnecessarily. It isn't. Um, Italy 
seal it late on. Again, Viali's involved this time out on the right instead of the left. Um, and Bergami is is fed in. He looks up, he takes his time, and it's um, I think it's Diagostini um, that's on the other yeah. end. He comes on for, for Donadoni. Um, his first touch as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely his first touch. Um, and Italy win 2 0. Uh, Loudrop again has another million yard shot near the end. Um, and here's the Here's the question I wanted to ask, okay, because my notes for the first half of this game, um, Viali make, uh, misses a half chance, Mancini scoffs one, <laughs> yeah. a better one, Viali misses an even better one. Um, great effort by Mancini, but the, the excellent save by, by Schmeichel. Um, they're not firing for Italy. No. They wouldn't. We know what what happens in two years and the, the, the run to that semi-final and, 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 and everything else. Um, now the draw, just by chance perhaps, is very kind um, to to that that semi, I suppose. How much then were they dependent on just this golden bit of timing from Toto Scalacci and, and just finding this moment, finding this 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 summer, um, or would they have done it anyway? Would would Baggio get maybe more of a, um, a an opportunity? Casaragi would maybe. Um, being relied upon more again, given the run, possibly going to get to that that semi final anyway. Does it change? I'm just they are so mm. wasteful in front of goal. I think David Lacey says they're the the most balanced at this point, yes. the most balanced team, and they probably are because yeah. look at how they move, look at how they they, they 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 build play. The midfield superb. They've conceded what well, one goal, maybe maybe two. A couple yeah, of for the dodgy. Yeah. No one goal for the dodgy back the pass. Dodgy, oh, not dodgy yeah. back pass. Venga, Zenga, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they are built well, they are set up well. And listen, you know, Sampdoria are going to go on and eventually win a title. These are not these are not dumplings up front. So no, for whatever reason, it's not happening in that blue. Um, yeah, just how how much of well, of, of nineteen ninety was was based on on Scalacci just. Being brilliant for for that. That's uh, as any of us I'll, I'll watched, like, if anybody, any of us or any listeners who have watched The Godfather know that when a Sicilian has the opportunity to take over from the big man, he tends to take that opportunity. So he uh, Scalacci did that, and Scalacci was just so energetic in 1990. I think Scalacci would have scored the goal that Altabelli scored. He wasn't as technically gifted a player, but he would have been making that run and he would have stood a, a chance of doing it. I don't think Mancini is ever making that run. So, yeah, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And, um, you know, Scalacci was who the press and the public wanted in 1990. They got their wish. And, um, you know, he, he delivered all the way uh, to the final hurdle. So, you know, I I, I I think it's there. I think Scalacci was the man, but he was just waiting the opportunity. He had that golden season. He was not a one se- Well, it was the one-season wonder that got him to... It was a 12-month wonder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my instinct is because they weren't conceding goals, they would have, I hate the phrase, found, found a way, but they would have found a way to win most games. But you're right, even the Austria game, First game of Italian 19, they win 1 0, and they miss fucking loads of chances. Funnily enough, I mean, Viali kind of almost inadvertently signs his own death warrant by with an amazing cross for Scalacci to score against Austria. It really is a phenomenal cross. And it's interesting seeing him in this game also doing a hell of a lot of donkey work for others. 
um, which works a lot better when you've got a goal scorer. Whereas yeah, yeah, the year yeah. Sampdoria won the league, he was the kind of all-action hero up front, scored, I think, 18 and 25 or something like that, which was unprecedented, not unprecedented, but, you know, a hell of a lot. Um, so, yeah, it, but it is interesting. It's almost kind of not comforting, but interesting because we're around this time, English people are starting to wonder why John Barnes doesn't do it for England. And so is John Barnes. And it, it's interesting to know that equally brilliant players in Italy Sometimes it just doesn't quite fit. I don't know, but but you're right. I almost feel this game is quite significant for Mancini because already the the joy of that first goal against West Germany and the vindication, his first goal for Italy, it's kind of fading. He's like Gary said, he's in a foul mood, but he's substituted. And it's only twenty three, twenty four. Contrast that with Vola because mm. he's under that pressure. He gets it, and he's he's pretty much off and running. That that takes him to a World Cup medal, right? Yeah, maybe Vola was a bit more experienced. Maybe that. Quiet. Mancini should yes, be fine. There's a super goal against West Germany and in the first game. But it's and you know, some were as I said, snatched chances. There was one who was very unlucky. Michael does very well. He's yeah. taking it on the run, I think. Um but you know, international football, you're not you're not playing 38 of them a season with the same players in the same dressing mm-hmm. room and the same training ground every every day. Um you, you just have to be in that moment and just be kind of assured when when that that, that opportunity comes up. But he but he was it's, playing with his mate from Sampdoria, which is interesting. I'd love to know. I don't know the kind of trajectory from 88 to 90 because obviously they have friendlies only. So I'd I'd like to know when Vicini lost faith in Mancini because I know by 1990, I think Carnavali starts up front with Viali in the first game. Then Scratch comes on, it all changes. You've got Baggio. Mancini's in the squad, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't play a minute, or if he does, it's only in the third place playoff. So it would be interesting to track that from 88 to 90, how how it developed. Because I mean, he's still doing really well for Sampdoria. I think they won a cup in his cup in 90, or it was 89, one or the other. Um, 89, yeah, 90, I think, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't see enough of that. Sampdoria side, but obviously you're you're right, Rob. I they love were, them. They 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 carried them to the. Oh, they didn't carry them, but they were two of the key components in the Serie A winning. And yeah, I think it, I think it, it was their first Serie A, certainly for a long time. Only, no, they're only yeah. one ever. Yeah, it's one of the great fairy tales. They they were yeah. quite a defensive team, so they only it's it's only a slight oversimplification. The only three attackers: Mancini, Viali, and Lombardo, speeding up and down the right. So. You know, Vialli Mancini was sensational that season. They were throughout the time of Sampdoria. Never I mean, quite in clicked. my mind's eye, in my mind's eye, I've got Vialli wide and Mancini deep, and it's Man- kind Mancini of, kind of thinking, definitely. Where's the where's the the point of the arrow? And you compare and contrast, and the goal was an example of West Germany where. Klinsman is five yards away from Rudy Voller in the mm. middle of the mm. goal on the edge of the penalty box. I wonder how often, even with the understanding they had at Sampdoria, when Mancini and Viali would be that close together, which obviously limits your margin for error if you're closer together, makes the passing easier and will create bigger chances for goals. Um, I, I That can only be conjecture. But it, it was really noticeable just how close Fuller and Klinsman were there. Uh, Klinsman obviously was new to the side. He was the younger player. Fuller needed his confidence boosting. He was 28. I think Klinsman was 22. And Klinsman lays the ball onto his foot from five yards Brilliant away. Goals. It's not happening for Viali and no. Mancini, that goal. And what, what I like about the first goal is also the... Um, the timing of Vola's run. The minute Klinsman spins the defender, Vola 
whether he knows or whether it's just what he does, yeah, but yeah, it yeah. looks choreographed. It's really nice. And this is, they haven't played together long at all in, at this point in time. Clint was only making like seventh or eighth appearance. It's just what it's worth for comedy value, repeating a line from earlier. So earlier, Volley's actually whistled by the home fans earlier in this game. But of course, earlier in the tournament, Paul Brighton would say, you might as well play the janitor, which always, always tickles me. But yeah, but apparently Volley was pretty emotional, actually. And the jeering interested me because we think of the modern era with social media and the, the sheer hatred that is kind of reserved for that. But actually, even then, in 1980, you're getting a home player in your own European Championship, getting jeered and whistled at the start of the game. And so I thought that was interesting. And obviously, we'll come to it. The England fans weren't entirely um, supporting their boys during the USSR game either. <laughs> oh, one last well, thing on this game. The on. second goal is offside. Or might be offside in the modern game. Bergami tries to pass for Altabelli, who is miles offside, or cross. The ball gets deflected to Agassini, scores. There's no discussion, nothing. I just I find these things really interesting, partly because I, you kind of want to remember what the law was around that time, and there'll be one later on in the England game as well. Um, but it might be, you know, in a and there's a much bigger one, sorry, in the Ireland game. But in a, you know, in the modern game, probably would have been kind of tediously given offside. Um, you know, analyzing everything, and, and at the time. The show just went on. No one cared. No one appealed. Do, do you think? Do you think that Schmeichel could have come for that ball because it, it sort of rolls Second across one. the kind of line of the six-yard box, and then he, get, well, he gets quite close. But it, to... yeah, the Times report, which I imagine had been edited at you know rush for the deadline, just said after a goalkeeping error. And I thought, that's a bit harsh, but I suspect the original report clarified what it meant by that. So he kept the ball rolls across kind of the six-yard box, doesn't it? And he yeah. comes for it, but at a weird angle, he ends up getting injured actually. Um, because he, he does, kind of dives yeah. on, yeah. So possibly, possibly, yeah. I mean, his decision making in terms of when to come and when to stay was really bad in this game. Um, it did make some good saves though, and like I said, the one-on-one save was actually like seeing something from the future, watching it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in the past, just absolutely hurtles at Mancini. It's kind of, it was kind of thrilling to watch. But it's interesting though because he's twenty-four at that age. I know goalkeepers mature later, but there's no sign there that you're talking about. A great, never mind an all-time great. One quick thing, I think I said before the game that Italy could have gone out with a draw. They actually they had to lose to have any chance of going out. So I caught that. I just uh, as a little postscript, I, I saw um Peter Schmeichel play one of his first games. I think it was one of Ryan Giggs' first games at, uh, as well. Vashika uh, made a flying save from Vashika. Well, we we came out and for the first time mm. um me and my brother and my dad were saying, God, you know, this Manchester United side are going to win it, aren't they? And the reason we said that is the first time they had a fantastic goalkeeper. We yeah. just couldn't believe how good he was. And it wasn't just, obviously, the play. It was the personality as well. And I think that that is as much what a goalkeeper develops between the age of sort of 24 and 28, is that dominance, that uh, yes. the very best of them, thou shalt not pass, and um, you see, Schmeichel, he, he he looks younger than 24 in the face. He, does, he looks yeah. like a kid with a kind of giant uh, kid's face on top of a giant body. But he wouldn't have developed that. He certainly had developed it by the time he arrived at Manchester United, I think, two, two years later. Interestingly, just very quickly to digress, I remember that game. So I think he started with three or four clean sheets and everyone was ready. But he actually then had a really rough spell. He, he threw one in against Leeds. Um came for a cross, didn't get there. And the following Tuesday, they were away at Wimbledon. And I remember I went to the game with my dad and they fuck, you can imagine, they fucking battered him all game. And he actually, yeah, he did yeah. pretty well, but he made a mistake for the goal again. They United won 2-1, but 
So he actually did, even then, even with his kind of physical and um, professional maturity, he still did. Now the stuff about adapting to English football feels a bit risible, but you, you really did need to then. It took him a little while. Not long, but, it, you know, it took him a while. He had, he had an amazing start, then a little blip, and then became amazing again. Well, we're going to address the elephant in the room, uh, which is the scourge, and it was at one of its highest points of moral panic, of hooliganism, an Irish word. I'm going to turn to a Scotsman, but it was seen very <laughs> much as an English problem, but actually it wasn't entirely an English problem in this tournament. Um, the press were full of it. There were wailing and gnashing of teeth. There were the identity cards being mooted. There were, we shall not go to Italy, passport bans, all kinds going on. And they were accompanied by some pretty bad scenes uh, early in the tournament. But Martin, the, 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 the real story was slightly more nuanced than that. Yeah, and I think it's one that gets kind of forgotten. This tournament gets forgotten. I would actually wager... The European Championships isn't a thing in this country until 1996. I don't really think you treat it that seriously. I don't think it resonates in the memory, any aspects of it. Um, the hooliganism at Euro 88 was not great. There's precedent for that. I mean, Euro 1980, was it called Euro 1980 in those days? It was just called European Nations Cup or whatever it was. And um, that, that was not fun either. Um, England and Belgium um, especially being particularly bad. Um but the, the the levels of hooliganism um, in this championship, um, I think, go under the radar a little. It was over 900 arrests. The West German police, with their newfangled computer technology, were very much ready for what some hooligans described as their Olympics. Um, they, they're very much um, going for, for that rather than to, to just, as a byproduct, catch the occasional game of football. Um, and there, there, there was trouble at the, at the start in Stuttgart and England's game with, with the Republic of Ireland. Um, although it should be said that, that the English and Irish fans were fighting with well, together against the German police. So there's a unification story for you. Um, but but I, I, the real story, I suppose, from this is that the main culprits in terms of the real violence were... Germans were Dutch. Um, that that was the German police's um, assessment of it, um, and it wasn't quite the kind of monochromatic um, picture that, that that was was very much on vogue at that 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 time. The government were not really interested in in any kind of nuance, any kind of shade of grey. Um, very much pushing towards um, the English national team being part of the the, the wider. UEFA ban, which was of course still in place um, for for English clubs, or at the very least, if England did qualify for for Italy, um, that there, there would be no travelling support. So all of that was 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 very much in the uh, in the offing. Despite um, although there was disturbance, um, not not being um, an entirely England problem, um, but it there's a quite a, a fair conversation between Deadline and um, Bobby Charlton about. What do we do about this? It's going to get us into bother. Will there be an English team at these tournaments um, for, for, for much longer, um, et cetera, et cetera? By now, it's just becoming, I think, tired, actually. These these guys on, yeah, exactly. on, on football shows, ex-footballers, football presenters, tired about talking about social issues. Um, but possibly, possibly, um, 
in terms of the hooligan, obviously the, the real nadir of, of fan safety is is sadly still to come a year later. But certainly in terms of of um, you know deliberate action, um, possibly that nadir had been been passed. And we are nearly into the summer of love, aren't we? And and or the second one, and 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 moving away into a different kind of culture um, that, that that's obviously going to. Um, see its first renaissance in, in in Italy and then the birth of what comes after that. Um, but it's it's one that doesn't really get talked about in the the, the, the grand scheme of uh, of of that that story. Possibly because, as I said, there are other culprits, uh, perhaps more to blame than than the usual one, and the exhaustion is just just there in terms of of of, of this conversation. Uh, Rob, I want to ask you. Um something that struck me mm. uh the you're a football journalist amongst many things of course <laughs> um and it's football <laughs> journalists who are being asked to pontificate on this stuff you've got Hugh McIlvanny writing about it David Lacey you've got David Morris in the mirror uh the sun would be leading the charge as well and then there's the pundits in the studio and you you're kind of thinking Looking back at it now, it, it seems hard to believe that 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 first of all that these people's views were carrying weight in what was obviously a complex social problem that that required uh, uh, many interventions and indeed, as Martin has said, required really a, a change of culture that that comes about with different uh, elements of. Uh, of the population, the demographics starting to go into football, Italia 90, pay-per-view, uh, subscription football and all of that, changing the demographics and the age demographics as, as well. Football crowds got older. But you know, Martin Edwards is, is there, uh, Manchester United's chairman, um, suggesting legislation. Does it seem bizarre that journalists, that Butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, who were the people in football boardrooms at that time, and ex-footballers were were being asked to solve so complex a social issue that had been persistent for fifteen years. What would you say if you were told you had to write about the hooliganism? <laughs> I can tell you exactly what I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I so. Well, I suspect you'll have a better answer to me. Partly because I was twelve years old, and partly because it's it's hard to imagine a world like that now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I suppose there's always, you know, there's always a recurring joke in or line in newspapers that sport is the toy department and you just kind of leave them. And and that kind of took on a slightly more sinister hue, I guess, in the 80s because football scene is such a slum sport, you know, slum spectators or whatever it was. So maybe there was an element of that. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to know because obviously people like Lacey, you know, David Lacey, Hugh McIlvanny, frankly, I'd listen to their opinion on anything. They were such smart brilliant people but it is what I, I think i remember one of you saying that in the preview that david lacy's tournament preview the first half is about hooliganism of a european championship which is extraordinary when you think about it so i don't know it you know all the stuff about the news rotters who used to try and stitch people up and everything you had that in the cricket in the 80s and i, and I don't know what the relationship was like i, I obviously i wasn't there but I, what I, I, took, I did find interesting is that broadsheets and tabloids the hooliganism was front page and the football wasn't and even if we had a hooliganism problem now, you could barely see the result on the front page. It would just be a footnote. England lost to the Netherlands 3-1 yesterday and are out. So I thought that was interesting. It was clear. I mean, you were much more mature than I was, but it felt like it was just a like just a, this almighty shadow of a football. You know, a month earlier, you've got the playoff between Middlesbrough and Chelsea. 
which should happen more often, by the way, because that was playoff between two different leagues, like you do in Scotland, which I think is brilliant. But there was an almighty riot when Chelsea went down. I think it was before they went down, in fact. Um, excuse my dog barking. I'm going to shut up. One of my dogs is kicking off, so I'm going to let you take over, Gary. Sorry. Okay, well, it would be nice. Comforting is probably a better word to describe it as a kind of moral panic uh, that, that all kind of cultures have from time to time, fanned by the press, selling papers, but actually it's We're not... having one or two right now. <laughs> but it's not as big as people made out, but it, it was actually big. It was big enough, and it was you know, it was expensive, it was particularly when the English national team were involved, there was a sense of shame in the, in the country, um, and it's intractability, it was it was really hard hard to to see a solution to it uh and maybe that solution was hard to see because there wasn't very much sign of it martin one thing that does stand out just think i guess this um this different world and the, the, the past as a foreign country and all that um given how obsessed politicians are with jumping on the back of of sport and success just how polarised um, the, the sporting authorities, the football authorities were with the government of the time and could not be far further apart, probably hasn't been as, as, as far apart in, in, in the history of the game um, and how relatively quickly that changed really, you know, a decade on and Tony Blair's doing you know head tennis with Kevin Keegan and pretending that he was a season ticket holder when Jackie Melbourne was about, um, even though he was born four months after Melbourne. <laughs> it, it, that's just, that's an absolute sea change, and it's been like that ever since. Um, in, in, in British sport, politicians can't get, get anywhere, you know, um, can't get close enough to it. Um, that's that's very striking. That 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 chasm, that that absolutely and seemingly intractable. Um, void that you, you you have there, Gary, at that time. Yeah. Well, we don't want to labour that point, but it would have been wrong for us to do um, the whole of the group stages without uh, without mentioning it. I don't want to pull back the curtain too much on what we're doing here at Ness and Dorma, but uh, I've completely failed twice in my hosting <laughs> duties. I'm blaming... I'm blaming five days at Lords, which, if you can remember, the England Australia Test match at Lords, there was some incident. It wore me out just watching. It wore Rob Smythe out, who was reporting on it. But Rob is more compass mentis than I am. So over to Rob for the introduction to Group D. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Gary. My, my hosting <laughs> career begins and ends here. So basically, the point we're going to make is that the BBC, which is really interesting, decided to show the Netherlands-Republic of Ireland game, which was essentially the group decider, uh, not USSR England. And of course, in those days, there's no BBC Three. There's no Well, there was a BBC Two, but it wasn't on there as far as I'm aware. You would only see England highlights halftime. Um, so Netherlands game was shown... Yeah, Saturday afternoon this is, you know, I, you can just imagine some of the fuming, some of the Brexit fuming around the country. Because I remember, I'm going off on one here, sorry. But anyway, when, when England played San Marino in qualification in USA 94, and it became apparent they weren't going to qualify, the BBC switched to Wales-Romania after about 50 minutes, um, just before Paul Burden's penalty, which I'm sure you remember. But anyway, they got loads and loads of complaints. I couldn't find anything about complaints here, so maybe... Everyone hated England so much after the first few games that they didn't complain. Anyway, England-USSR, dead game for England already out. USSR needed a point to be certain. 
in fact, they probably needed a point because if they lost, then I think they were screwed one way or another, or it might have come down mm. to goal difference. Uh, teams, England had a few issues, 11 specifically, but they <laughs> they um, they replaced Shilton with Chris Woods, who was a, a kind of very respected backup goalkeeper. I know Martin thinks really highly of him, and Robson said he wanted to see him in a competitive game. Your beloved Everton centre-half, Dave Watson, replaced the injured Mark Wright centre-back. Uh, Steve McMahon came into midfield for Peter Beardsley. And what that meant, which I must say I've completely forgotten, is that Glenn Hoddle played as a number 10, which he had been for Monaco. thought that was really interesting. So the team was Woods, 4-4-1-1, if you like. Woods, Gary Stevens, Dave Watson, Tony Adams, Kelly Sansom, Trevor Stevens, Steve McMahon, Brian Robson, John Barnes, Glenn Hoddle, Gary Lineker. Lineker nearly didn't play, and there's a lot of talk about him having some kind of mysterious illness, which we know now as hepatitis B. They were talking about kidney problems. There's even a weird quote where I think he's responding to a question about, are you depressed? And he says something like, I, I couldn't say if I'm depressed, I'm not a psychoanalyst, which is just weird, basically, all because he had, didn't have much energy. Um, so, you know, uh, the understanding of depression was a bit different in 1998. Um 1988 and 1998. US Sun made two changes. Desaev, who we were told was out of the tournament after injuring his knee against Ireland, um, played. Uh, they brought Betanov and Litovchenko, Sulak Valids and Demianenko. I mean, uh, I know I keep going about formations, but honestly, trying to work this out, they've said they've got the kind of three, a back four, including a left back, Vasily Rats, who had been moved back and was basically playing as a left winger. They had Protsov up front, Belanov, who's like an outside right. Four central midfielders just going wherever the hell they please. Litovchenko, Elenikov, Zavrov, Mikhailichenko. Um, so it was kind of a very, very fluid 4-4-2. Um, yeah, those were the teams. What chance did England have of analysing uh, the Soviet Union when they thought they were all Russians? And of course, they were largely Ukrainians. <laughs> um, Martin, you were going to come in. Yeah, it was just on the Linica thing, which again is unimaginable now that, that someone who feels that lethargic in that first game is complaining in the the, the second game against the Netherlands that he, he's really struggling to put one leg in front of the other and he's still starting um on on uh, on this, this this final game a meaningless game effectively um that there's just no no cognizance that, that someone maybe isn't in quite best condition. I know he's very important. Um, and I know Robson, you know, we, we know what happens next, don't we? You know, Robson takes umbrage because Lineker asked not to play, right? And 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 Robson's plays him anyway. Is that right? I think so. And he, because he said, I, I, I am shattered. I, I, it's not I, that I don't want to leave my country, I always do, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely exhausted here. He takes him off late in the game, of course. Um, and then Robson makes a comment to the mail that, there were some players that didn't want to play or looked like they didn't want to play. Lineker took that very much to heart. I think he threw the paper at, at, at Robson before they left. He went back home and eventually was was tested for Hep B. He was very worried, actually, and this again shows you the, the, the time and the age that we were in, that he might have AIDS. Um, such, was the, such was the ignorance around and the, the, the very visible and... and um, mm widespread ignorance around how one could contract that that he, he just he, he didn't understand why he was so exhausted um 
But think of the red zone and the the the, the absolute monitoring yeah. of the slight drop off in 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 in, in energy and fitness and whatever else. Um, for a fucking dead game as well. Exactly. Yeah, so, and I know this tournament kind of opens the door to the World Cup that, that comes and really the the birth of modern football that 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 that, that spawns. But there's something very much of the the Corinthian. There's another incident. Yeah, there's another incident in the island game. I'm just going to say, it's not just the Corinthian spirit, though. I mean, this is pre-Sven, where, you know, the 11 changed at half-time. There was a real sense that you had to earn an England cap. And if you were not the best available player, you had no right to that cap. Um, And I'm sure that that played a part. Um, that there would have been some pressure on Bobby Robson, and God knows there was plenty of pressure in the press on him. That to to do something that was seen that would be seen as soft, to do something which would appear to be awarding an England cap as a kind of consolation prize, because Lineker was to use a a, a terrible word, but I read it somewhere, listless, which mm. is Washed almost out. I think slanderous. Yeah, another one. Yeah, yeah. And, um, that would have been. That would have been seen as unusual, you know. If you can, if you can get on the field, you get out there on the field. Would have been, I think, not just the vast majority of people in the press. It would have been the vast majority of fans as well, regardless of it being a, a, a dead rubber, regardless of any impact on Lineker's long-term health. Rob, I think, well, yeah, two things. I, I agree with you. I'm sure Bobby Robson, decent man that he is, would eventually have apologised. Of course he would. And I guess you can sort he of did. understand the ignorance. He visited, um, he visited Lineker Hospital to see. Yeah. Um, and you could accuse Lineker of many things, as people, as people have. But, yeah, he was never, ever a shirker. He, like, he was mentally and physically really tough. I, I just The mood was obviously so febrile before, during and after the game because there was that thing we spoke about last time. There was a mirror story that said... Mirosol said, "My dog's never going to shut up." Sorry, um, the, they want the players wanted Brian Robson to play in defence against the Netherlands. But anyway, the day before the game, Bobby Robson said, "It's a diabolical lie," and then he threatened to get Brian Robson into the press conference. And he said, "Then again, perhaps that's not too wise." He's so angry, he might throw his fists around. As it turned out, he threw his fists around one of his teammates after the game. He chimped Pete Shilton, but um, yeah. So there you go. There's another thing that I read, um, which is very typical of the time, which is. Amongst the the tearing of hair out by the uh, the press pack, there's a there's a I would say a, a semi serious suggestion that um, one Robson should replace the other, and that Brian Robson should become England's player manager. Um, again, we the solution to England's tactical naivety, uh, the solution to their technical issues is. Is as far as the press are concerned, uh, one is is always Brian Clough, and the other is kind of performative lion-heartedness. Um, yeah. They're up against uh, Valerie Lobachenko, Lobanovsky, Lobanovsky, the the high priest of uh, of Jonathan Wilson's inverting the pyramid, and the solution uh, in the in the longer term is to make Brian Robson the England manager. It's extraordinary. And again, it's a sea change uh, across the, the generations to how that sort of thing would just be instantly laughed out of court these days because mm-hmm. coaching football teams are seen as a full-time scientific 
thing that you need well, experience for. While, while I agree with you, what I would say is in, in practice, other countries went for it a lot more than England did. Bring in a legend who's got no experience, really, like Klinsmann and well, Bastard, I think. I know they had a bit, but yeah. but no, I agree with you. That was that, that was always, it was always, Brian Robson was always going to replace either Alex Ferguson or Bobby yeah. Robson. It's interesting also that Brian Clough had to go on Saint and Greasy to deny a Daily Mirror story that he's basically yeah. trying to force Robson out of the job. Like, it's, well, not extraordinary times, just it's, unusual times. He said he said he was too old at 53? 53? Yeah. Too old? <laughs> Dear me. So the, the yeah. actual oh. game, before I forget, oh, just, I want to just, one thing. Just say one more thing on yeah. that player-manager thing. We should note that two years earlier, Kenny Dalglish had won a double as a player-manager. So it was, it was outrageous. It so. was very much involved. And there was a certain thing going on in Scotland at the time. Yeah. And going very well. Yeah. Um, so I just before I forget, I want to talk about five. Literally five seconds into the kickoff, McMahon tries to impose his personality on the <laughs> game. You can see it over his shoulder on the TV, and you you know from McMahon, you've seen it a million times. You can see his body shape. He's going in for a, a fair but brutal two footed tackle on some poor Russian prick in midfield. Um, and it's pretty. You see a kind of blur of legs. And then this little, I couldn't work out which US star player it was. He walks away and McMahon's there just wincing and holding his shin bone. It's fucking beautiful. He just picks off, he gets, he bites off more than he can chew, basically. It's just really funny because it's a classic English, I'll impose myself. And then whoever it is just sees him coming, studs on the shin. <laughs> don't try that again, son. I thought it was hilarious. I, I don't know why I never really warmed to McMahon. And I, I just found that particularly amusing. Well, it was an indication of just how naive England were going to be in, in this match. Um, the, the reports talk of five goals could have been scored by the Soviet Union in the first 20 minutes. And when you see the highlights, that's not an outrageous claim. Um, but England were wide open from beginning to end, weren't they, Rob? Yeah, they were awful, weren't they? I mean, it, I, I, the more I watch this, the more I kind of feel sorry for Tony Adams because he was scapegoated. But... Um... Yeah, there's, there's so much. They're so exposed to two centre-backs, in this case, Dave Watson. I mean, Bell and Prots are really good, but they don't have to do too much to get through it. It's not an exaggeration, really. Um, I mean, I'll talk about the first guy, then Martin can maybe do the rest. But So after te- three minutes, Hoddle finally getting his dream of, you know, free roll for England, number 10. <laughs> Adams wins the ball really well in the edge of the area. Walk, plays it to and then kind of has a spurt of Beckenbauerism. He just runs upfield, God love him. A bit like he did against Everton more gloriously 10 years later. Hoddle just sort of tries to walk past the Lenikov, picks his pocket without even thinking. Adam's out of the game, so England are totally naked. Watson comes across. Lenikov sends him off to the wrong fire like Pushkas did in 53 and scores. I mean, it's it's a, it's an awful goal. It really is at any time. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let... Um, I'll let, <laughs> I'll let Martin carry on from here. Can I ask about Hoddle? Um, number 10, the, the Beardsley role, I suppose, support Lineker. A, why is he involved picking up play on the edge of the, the, the England 18? I mean, I know a free roll is a free roll, but there are that's limits to that. that that's that's <laughs> outrageous. What, what on earth is he doing? And also, the shot untucked. In three minutes, he starts like that. That's very languid, very relaxed, very cool. Was that picked upon at the time? Um, exacerbated by that. That pe- it was slack play. It was careless, casual um, slack play. And does that did that image exacerbate a, a, 
an anger and, a, and an annoyance about that that kind of casual um relaxed attitude on the edge of your own fucking 18 year box <laughs> i'll let gary talk more because he's better on huddle because he was younger at the time and generally i love huddle and i do think we should have tried to uh, not build a team around him but instagram use him yeah. my, my instinct is that it definitely angered bobby robson because Huddle never played in england again so he just binned him after this um i don't think it did in the press like it's reported that huddle was at fault for the first two goals but it's reported in quite a detached way, certainly the stuff I've read. I think Hodder was still generally pretty loved, even at this stage, I think. And in fairness, I actually think he played pretty well in the first two games, um, albeit as a more orthodox central midfielder. But it, there's just something quite cruel about, for 10 years pretty much, he dreamed of a free role for England. And he gets it after winning the title, playing in that position for Monaco, played brilliantly by all accounts. It's a dead game. He has an absolute stinker. And he never plays for England again. But he also makes a goal, which is kind of never reported. Yeah. Um, Gary, any thoughts on Huddle? Because I always like listening to you on Huddle. Um, when you look at the press before the tournament, and indeed in the tournament, you read, and this is what rankled a, a bit, I think, you know, I'm going to sound like a chippy scouser here. You read the London press who have one answer to every problem, which is play Glenn Hoddle at number 10. And Hoddle got such press, you know, he was the darling, especially of the London press. And to a lot of us, he would be called these days a luxury player. Now, obviously, he wasn't a full-on luxury player because he'd won stuff at, at Tottenham. But there was always a mistake in him. But you, you kind of understand that a little better now because he was trying to play the killer ball. But he goes off to Monaco, was it, where, where he was? And as with most English sports people, um, if you go out of sight, you instantly become far, far better. There's uh, nothing improves... Uh, your chances of playing for the England cricket team, like having a period out injured, I can promise you that. And there was a bit of that involved there. And it, it kind of, you know, maybe I was at that age where you're more sensitive to these things, but um, we were we were looking at, at Everton players who'd won the title in 85 and in 87 and has won an FA Cup in 84 and come second in 85 and again and and you look we were looking at, at players who may not have had as high a ceiling as Hoddle but were certainly going to be better over 38 games or as it was then 42 and arguably over the seven games of a, a, a tournament but England have always thanked three in this one but it, it would have been six wouldn't yeah, it? Five yeah. but seven at Five. the World Cup. Yeah. And, and you you kind of you kind of look at it and you think really, and then Gaza comes along and shows that that actually there is that kind of player. He can play and he can make a difference. But it's it was kind of when when Gaza did did it. I remember in Italia ninety. I remember maybe he even had the conversation. That's what everybody told us Hoddle was going to do, and he never did. Certainly not for mm. England. It's a fair point. How did Spurs balance their midfield? Because they usually had two up front, didn't they? You see clips of Crooks and Archibald and people like that. Um, and I don't really remember that Spurs team, but they would have had a lot of ball players. Adidas, yeah. Hoddle, Mickey Hazard. Was it kind of quite a tight midfield? 
Well, Tony Galvin were terribly hard out uh, wide. Did, and yeah, you, yeah. You've got to remember that Graham Roberts, as I'm sure Martin uh, will recall, um, that if you uh, were carrying the ball anywhere in the midfield, you were soon uh, not carrying your knees because Graham Roberts would have taken them out. So um, that that helped a, a little bit. Is that harsh, no. Martin? No, he did, he did what he said. He did what he said in the tin. Uh, but he was, he was a good player. <laughs> He was a good player as well, Roberts with the ball. Um, he, he just didn't mind. He, he didn't mind getting stuck in. Um, back to this this yes. game. Then. Um, England are ravaged, and oh, geez, awful. Uh, Oleg off is just running. At sometimes, uh, other times, walking um, through <laughs> this, this England midfield. Um, he he threads in uh, Protozov. He should have done a wee bit better with one. Uh, there's a wasted chance for Belenov. He's offside, by the way, but I don't think it's given. But the England are so, so high. It's it's, it's a remarkable kind of approach. Um, and yes, listeners who maybe pounced on my error last week um, with Belenov <laughs> in, in some age, and he was world player <laughs> in the late 70s, I was thinking of, of Ole Bokken, who was not in this USSR squad, I don't think, but he was in the Dynamo Kiev team um, of that year. Um, and Kuznetsov again, just looking imperious, uh, and he, he threads Protsov almost identical, um, and the shot hits the, 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 the post. And then England equalise. Um, set piece, of course, beautifully um, flighted in by the aforementioned Hoddle. Um, and a young Tony Adams, as he's described, um, it's 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 kind of jarring for me to hear young Tony Adams because he's always been a player of such kind of experience and and uh, and stature at the end of that career as as, as I would have known him um, a lot more acutely. Um, listen, it's a good header. It's it's great great ball, great header, great football all round. England are one one. Could and maybe should have gone two one ahead not further and not long after that. And John Barnes gets away. Um, great ball at the back post for, for Trevor Stephen who hits the bar. Maybe a wee bit unlucky, um, rather than a, a sitter. But that would have been scandalous, absolutely yeah. scandalous if England had, had, had gone two one up there. Um, this could be another rabbit hole that we we lose ourselves in. But I'm going to ask anyway. That's the first time Barnes looks. Yeah, exactly. Dangerous himself. This, of course, would be a question that would dominate um, the, the the conversation around the England national team. I read a piece by Hugh McIlvanny on um, October 1990, so, so post-World Cup. Again, not a particularly happy experience for John Barnes. And Taylor's now in at this point, uh, and Taylor's given him the freedom that apparently he, he kind of craves, that you know the norm with England has been that you get possession, you have to have a cross, a shot, get a goal or lose the ball within 10 seconds. Um, that doesn't work for me. I, 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 creative players need a wee bit more time in the ball. We need to slow things down. I need more freedom. I want more responsibility rather than, than, than less. And the hope was, I think, um, futile, obviously, in the end, that the Graham Taylor would 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 give Barnes um, that, that, that bit of freedom. But from memory, it, it kind of worked a wee bit in, 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 in moments with with Taylor, but it was just a, a, one of these enigmas, but I, again, I go back to international football, about, about players just needing to feel absolute, either at home, or being able to say, this isn't my home, this is something different, I need to do a different job, I can do a different job. Gary? One of the issues with John Barnes is that he'd raised expectations so high, there was the goal in the Maracana, which had 
was it a couple of years before this? Um, yeah, and, 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 and he was so. double double footballer of the year, uh, football writers and professional footballers uh, player of the year uh, at twenty four. And I remember a game at Goodison. I think I was in the main stand uh, because it was a derby, and I think I picked up a ticket or something. It was it was around it was around this time, and. All Liverpool players were booed, and I'm not going to defend my fellow Evertonians at that time, but it would have happened at other grounds as well. I think Barnes was booed more because he was a black man in a team. In fact, probably 21 players were white, I would guess, and John Barnes was, was black. And that is, of course, appalling and everything else, but it did happen then. And Barnes just ran the game to such an extent and he was he was on the field with some outstanding players but he was so far above everybody else technically in terms of his personality his influence on the game it was just it was so dominant and Everton was just looking at each other I think Liverpool won 3-1 somebody's going to find out this was sort of 10 years later now but but the story (laughs) would still hold in any case because I think Barnes was substituted after Liverpool were already had won the game and 15 minutes left or something and I was in the main stand and you heard the clatter of the wooden seats as everybody talks about at Goodison um the clatter of the seats because the main stand at Goodison were on their feet to applaud John Barnes leaving the field he was that good the downside of that is that those same people who applauded Barnes off were constantly saying why can't he do it for England? And there were times when he did do it for England, but the the extent of the vitriol in the in the press, and it has to be said in public, shows you that nothing is new with Twitter. That vitriol has always yes. been there. Twitter is what brings it to the surface. Yeah, but it was scale. in the press, and it was in the pubs, and it was there. And Barnes was the target of it. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't that bad, even at his worst for England. But expectations were sky high. Right. There's a couple of things I want to say. Yeah, um, the, the thing you said about clattering of seats is so interesting because Chris Waddle said a brilliant thing in an interview. I think it's on Graham Hunter's podcast where he said when he was at Sheffield Wednesday, when he was like absolutely magnificent for a couple of years, when he got the ball and he would start kind of shuffling towards the defender, he would hear behind him the clatter of seats because he was on the ball and people were standing up, which I thought was so interesting. And you might lift it out and think, well, that's bullshit. But I don't know why you, how you make that up. I mean, how you think of it. No. Um so I thought it was really interesting, but also it's easy to forget just how astonishingly good Barnes was. I thought you were going to say there's a famous turn he does. You know the game when Wayne Clark scored and you beat them and they, they're unbeaten run into the 29 games, I think, from the start of the season. And early in that game at 0-0, he just leaves Peter Reid and I think it's Gary Stevens to eat dirt. This astonishing turn. It's absolutely amazing. I'll try and put it in the show notes. Um yeah, and I think people, it's easy for people to forget because it was pre Premier League, how he was for th- maybe three, four years before he got, I think it was an Achilles injury, I forget. He was just astonishingly good. I mean, one of my favorite goals of all time is his goal against QPR in his Liverpool career, which is just the best piece of balance I think I've ever seen. He changes direction in midair. It's it's incredible. Again, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's worth looking at. They beat QPR 4 0. QPR were league leaders, actually. I think it's October 87. And it's just one of the most beautiful things you get. The sheer elegance of it um, for a big man as well. And he was the best player in that year, but he did nothing. There's a quote, I think it's even before or after this game. He said, it's different playing for England. I can't explain it. 
and I'm not sure he ever did. I mean, there, there are loads of interesting things that all played out. Pete Davis's book about Tally 90, which had amazing access where he talks, particularly with Waddle, about the differences. Um, but it, there was never anything that I don't know. I mean, I thought it was interesting what you just said then, Martin, about you know, you pass you within 10 seconds, but there was never anything that book I could really cling on to that explained the difference in his form beyond what we spoke about. Spoke yeah. about the VR. I think sometimes uh, too yeah. much. There's a book, there's a study, there's a dissertation in yeah. uh, club and international football and that, that, that change of environment, change of, of situation that, that, that some just do not, cannot um, uh, replay what they do and, and, and replicate what they do every week. And some absolutely can. They can just adapt. They feel totally, totally secure. Um, not going to labour the point. Just assure me my mind doesn't go in. Barnes did score that free kick against the Netherlands at Wembley under Taylor, yeah, doesn't he? After about yeah, three minutes yeah. or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, no, he had his moments under Taylor definitely. Yeah, I did. They were. He, he got injured before you just for United too, yeah. and that was a big blow along with all the others. But yes, um, well, the USSR deservedly go two one in front. Um, pretty simple goal. Lo- then. Mc- lovely. Mc- it's a good team goal, though, isn't it? It's a really yeah. nice team goal. Well, what the so good at just. Tunneling. It's, um, tunneling it's also too easy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, Mikhailchenko just goes in, uh, finishes off. Um, and here's another another surprise, I suppose, from someone with my my background and my memory as a, as a Rangers fan. Gary Stevens came to Ibrox that summer and would be brilliant. He does not have a good tournament here. <laughs> so many of England goals come down the right-hand side. Uh, now, the England defence without Butcher is a bit of a mess in general. This is disgraceful, really, uh, just in terms of the the, the, the lack of mooring that, 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 that there is. Um, Kenny Sampson actually impressed me um, in, in retrospect a lot more than, than uh, I, I maybe imagined on, on the other side. But but England seemed to be exposed on that right-hand side at all. My memory, Gary, and certainly researching from my book, was that he was maybe a wee bit unsettled at Goodison by that point. He was very happy to go um, for maybe reasons other than football, but um, he's not in a brilliant place at this moment it just seems like how many goals did England concede what seven I think five of the seven come down come down the right hand side well this this never happened at Goodison he was a big attacking force down the right but somehow he was also able to defend he was he was so fit and his when to attack and and when to get back was was kind of preternatural in its reading of the game. Um, but you're right for England. You look at those you look at those chances and you think, uh, have we missed a, a quick throw in here, or is a player down injured or something? <laughs> because because you're thinking, where are all these Soviet cheating. Union players? They're all over the park. And you've got Tony Adams and poor Dave Watson there who are, who are looking up with four of them running at them. And thinking, where, where, where are they? Where are the defenders? And, Chris Woods makes a number of outstanding saves, uh, often one-on-one. And you're thinking, you know, this could have been half a dozen. Really easily could be half a dozen. And the the press that Bobby Robson got was vitriolic. You know, it's a, it's your full-on kind of Mike Bassett kind of stuff. You don't know what you're doing and all of that kind of stuff. He wasn't the, the kind of cuddly grandpa he became an Italian 90. You know, they, they wanted him out. They wanted Clough in. Um, and if they couldn't get Clough in, maybe Brian Robson. But they wanted they wanted him out. And watching this game, you kind of understand that. You're kind of thinking you you started the tournament as joint favourites and you look 
like uh, League Three side defending here. It's just shocking. He, his name in the England team when they were read out were booed before this game. Yes, that's right. But, but Robson's name was booed before the Republic of Ireland game. This is not. This is okay. So you have Mexico, and there's got to be a lot of goodwill from that because that's. That's yeah, a, that's a right. it's a good World Cup. Um, the qualifications, I think we mentioned in the preview, is the, there are pass marks here, especially away in 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 Belgrade. And um, okay, um, yeah, most goals, most goals anyone scored in qualification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, I, I get this. I get this. It's been a really disappointing week, effectively, and that's all it is. Um, and by the point the USSR game comes, there's there's a lot of. Um, uh, negative reaction but from to be booed before the island game i didn't that, notice that, that. that's amazing I, that's yeah. really interesting i think is that i think is that too, i was going to say i think there's a, I so i was just going to say uh just as a quick point on that one i think the england fans have been whipped up by the press that this was going to be christmas morning and you're going to be open presents around the tree and they didn't get any presents and like a, a <laughs> petulant child, they they stamp their they feet and they bang their they fists. And you know, maybe yeah, people will be listening and they'll be fans at the time, might be there, might think that's a bit of an insult. And it is a bit of an insult, but you know, really, that I think that was what England fans collectively, the, the body of opinion was you promised us this and now you've taken it away. Yeah, um, but that, that's now though. I get that it's it's before the island yeah game. before the island game. I, I'm yeah, that's yeah, really that's and yeah. again, that's the tabloid. They didn't they didn't love them, did they? No. Let's, let's no. be honest. And, and that that as we we talked about before, how important uh, a footprint the tabloid press made in 1988 around that time was was huge. Anyway, um, the great Chris Woods make sure that it's not. A cricket score, but there, there is a third to come. Um, rats, ah, these names are so evocative, aren't they? Yeah. Again, um, uh, just just working his way through, uh, and I think it's Basilko that, that 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 makes it three. Another tap in, another. Did mess. you think it was an own goal? I thought uh, it might have been an own goal. Possibly, it's, it's just it's just a mess. It's just a shambles. Um, go back to this positional stuff, and this this happened against Ireland as well. Mark Hately comes on. A target man enjoying himself in in um, France at the time in Monaco, and he's out on the left wing, deep on the left <laughs> wing, putting crosses in. And uh, what on earth is is going? It's that kind of last day at school. Did they bring games in, board games? Did they just wear their own clothes? I mean, what 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 on earth is 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 going on with the England performance here? Do you know what that performance reminds me of? I I totally agree with the last day of school, but it reminds me of basically a hungover session at Weatherspoons on a Sunday morning on your own. Just yeah. dignity and self-respect totally out the window. <laughs> and at, honestly, there are so many moments like Hodder walking into Elenikov, McMahon. I, I, there, there is, and I don't blame them because it must have been shattering to go to a tournament you thought you had a proper chance of winning and to be out in four days. But there is, it's, a, it's an awful performance. Yeah, I felt sorry for them watching it 35 years later, which is... Yeah, ridiculous. yeah. And, and Lomonofsky, who... You know, uh, legendary manager. Um, not sure I'd love to go for a pint with him, but don't know how much fun he would be. Absolutely fucking miserable after that that that, that win. But um, yeah, that that is. Um, it's worth saying there were a lot of England players who never played again. Yeah. Hoddle, Dave Watson, Sansom, Viv Anderson, Peter Reed, 
Hately didn't play for four years. And even Tony Adams, who obviously mm. had a bad time. So he gets replaced by Des Walker during the first World Cup qualifier. Um, replaced during the game, I mean. And then he plays once more under Robson in two years in a friendly. And the other weird thing is, after conceding seven in three, and it could have been 12, they qualify for the World Cup without conceding a goal in six games. Mm. Butcher's back, but even so. The perversities of football, sometimes you just can't explain it. it there is a... Uh, I think it was the David Lacey piece, Rob, where there is an identification of the the new guard and Des Walker gets a mention. Yes, and so does Gary Pallister and Wonder Kid Paul Gascoigne. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, as well, and you can see that changing of the guard. I mean, I I, I know I've mentioned Mike Bassett a few times here, um, and I do think it's an underrated film, but. There's a, a scene in Mike Bassett where he's at the end of his tether and he's bringing on a substitute and the sub's asking him, does he go into a 3-4-3 or 4-4-2? Is it? Oh, I don't know, just run around a bit. <laughs> you do get the idea that England's players were told to just go out there and run around a bit. It was that bad. Fair play to Bobby Robson, though. He reinvented the team. He retained at least some working relationship with the press and he took us to Italia 90, which, yeah. you know, um, until... Just... Recently, yeah, he had a bit of luck on the way, but luck is a but part then of the Yeah, you're right. They didn't have much luck here. He, um, one thing he does, just a, a little echo back to a conversation before, he says, Look, I don't mind taking the, the hits, uh, I don't mind taking the, the abuse because for once it won't be John Barnes. And he, he again, just making mention, protecting his players, perhaps, and and, and, and all of that. But, um, it, it's not, it's not a happy camp. Um, despite all the, the expectation. Um, Rob, do you have the time and peace to, to run us down the teams? And the only Group 2 game that's of really any kind of relevance um, in Gelsenkirchen. If, if, if Margot will be quiet for a minute, I'll try. So, yeah, this is really interesting. Basically, this is a quarterfinal and yeah. the Republic have the draw, essentially, because it's safe to us. There is a way they can both go through, but that involves England being competent, and obviously we've done that. Um so Ireland have one change, I think. McGraw was fit again, came in for Kevin Sheedy, who'd actually played really well against USSR, but McGraw obviously better defensively in central midfield. Uh, Dutch were exactly the same, kind of um, 4-4-1-1. Van Brooklyn, Van Arla, Koeman, Riker, Van Tegelen. Midfield, Vandenberg, Valters, Muren, Erwin Koeman. Hullet, going, kind of going where he wants, Van Basten. Ireland team, Pat Bonner, Chris Morris... Mick McCarthy, Kevin Moore, and Chris Hutton. Ray Houghton, who was, again, really good. Uh, probably certainly their best attacker, maybe their best player in the tournament. Ronnie Weed and Paul McGrath. Tony Galvin, who was also really pretty good. John Aldridge and Frank Stapleton. Um, and, yeah, the pattern of the game, bar one McGrath header, mm. is the same for 90 minutes, isn't it? It, it is a wee bit. Um, there's a lot of talk before about the England game. Could England do... Ireland a favour by you know getting that result. What I loved about researching this game and, and thanks Rob for, for providing the the Daily Mirror um, uh, reports because tabloid speak is not something I really read much of these days. And, <laughs> you know, uh, no answer to red hot ruskies. Um, uh, yeah. England, England needed to do something against the the the. the um, Mother Russia, but they they would have had no chance against Mother Teresa. Um, yeah. That 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 kind of writing um, is it is um, a, a very special throwback. Yeah, this the pattern of this game is set, and again we we, we kind of mentioned it earlier. It is long range effort after long range effort. Van Tegelen starts it, 
um, um, Erwin Koeman has won, um, Arnold Muren has won, Van Basten has won. Um, this is all in the first half. Now, again, it's either of its time, whether I was kind of half joking about Bonner being a, a, a Rick and, and he's going to throw one in. Fast forward, of course, to the Orange Bowl and, or the Citrus Bowl, whatever it's called in in, in, in Tampa in Florida, um, where he would throw one against the Dutch. You Vim Yonk, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah, from, yeah, from range. Right. But that's all they did. Now, I'll come back to it in a minute. McGrath's header, by the way, is superb. And hits the post, maybe comes back against the arm of the, the, the guy on the line. I'm not, not entirely sure. Um, again, today that would be... be, be, be Kind of dissected and 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 and, and looked at, um, but I, you know, Republicans seem very comfortable with comfortable. that. Just, just looking at these long range efforts, um, the second half is much the same. Um, Jan Vautel hits the bar from the edge of the box. Um, Bonner flaps it across, and um, again, Vautel's is just kind of the edge of the box. He, he tries to just kind of chip over, and it, I think it might skim the bar onto the roof of the net. It's a really good effort that. Yeah, there's one that really fizzes back the coach as well. And and now the Dutch have three tall strikers on. And Hulet. And um there's a chance for Houghton. He just couldn't quite get the ball yeah. under his feet and, and, and get a get a shot away that would have sealed it. And um Keith's winner, uh, with seven minutes to go. I mean, it's very lucky. Koeman mishits the shot down into the ground. That puts a bit of spin on it, which means that, that Keith just has to, I guess, direct cushion the header. Um, now he's unmarked, or relatively unmarked, which, you know, isn't ideal if you're the defending side. Bonner really has no chance because it spins away around them. It's just, just one of those. Um, and then Ireland have to then change. They, they, can't, they can't really... Um, force anything that because they've not been playing that way um, but obviously over the next two episodes that follow here boys, we're going to be waxing lyrical about this Dutch team and how of course they, they own this championships and they're so synonymous with it and this Dutch football um, of the four teams that qualify judging what you've seen from these group stages, you they have to be the fourth in terms of, of, of how impressive they've been. Van Basten's explosive, explosive action against England um, aside, we, we talked about that last week. On another day, England could, could easily get something from, from that, that particular game. They've been huffing and puffing without the, the poise and the grace and the sophistication to get in behind and create chances that are very, very simple. Um, they are lucky to be in this semi-final. Um, they're not particularly impressive, um, but I guess this is tournament football, isn't it? Who, who cares um, it, 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 as long as you win? Um, but the colour of... of the, the the memories are coloured, I think, of this tournament, and that colour is totally. very orange, but it's not a case of doing it from, from top to bottom. They have not been that impressive looking back. I don't think they are. They're mm. fortunate to be here, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You, can, you kind of never get a second chance to make a last impression to you. I think Van Basten's goal. Having said that, I, I, before I hand over to Gary, I do think sometimes there are teams who go really close to the edge, but have a kind of aura that you always think they'll be okay. And the biggest example, I think that's France in 2000. They were really close in pretty much every knockout game. Yeah. And I don't know. I just felt they always had a, just an aura 
And that was slightly different because they won the World Cup. But I, I do think just from reading everything and listening to the commentaries, the Dutch still had that aura. They, I agree with you. They were lucky. I mean, that is one of the weirdest goals ever to win a big game. Um, Keith's thing, Keith's header is going miles wide. And it because of the spin Koeman puts on the ball, it, it turns like a leg break. And what, what I love about this, the kind of echoes of history, that um, so it turns to the leg break from right to left and goes in. But if you look at in the 78 final, Rensenbrink's shot yeah. in injury time is going in and then it turns like a leg break from right to left and it hits the post. Um, and the, perversely, Jonathan O'Brien points this out in his European Championship, which is really good. Perversely going forwards, they brought on three forwards, like you say, plus Hullet. And there are echoes, or there would be echoes, of um, the game when they lost at Lansdowne Road to Ireland and failed to qualify mm. for the World Cup in 2002. Because in that game, Van Gaal completely lost his shit and he brought on... He had at one point he had four big centre forwards: Van Nistelrooy, Van Hooydonk, Hasselbank, and Cliver. I mean, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Um, so I, I thought those kind of echoes of his forward and back were really interesting. Like it's an extraordinary goal. It's so weird. And the other thing is that um, we think of this as a triumph for Ireland, right? And it was, of course, it was. Jack Shelton was brilliant after the game, but you forget how close they were to semi-final, how devastating that was. McGraw when the goal goes in. It's like he's fainted. He just falls yeah. backwards really slowly. Whelan goes the other way, face down. And actually, Italian 90 is the big one for Ireland, of course, because they reached quarterfinal. It's the World Cup. But this was a quarterfinal, and they had a much better chance of making a bloody semi-final. And they, I also thought, just one last thing before, sorry, they were so good defensively. I agree Holland and the Netherlands lost patience a bit, but it's partly just because Ireland, just there were just no spaces. Well, I think they were very early. Yeah, they're an early example of a really well-coached team. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, I don't want to press, right? But I think there are two reasons why they didn't in this game. One, the heat mid-afternoon, and that wore them down. And two, because they effectively started this game where they found themselves after eight minutes for England, one nil up. Mm. And human nature, you just retreat and retreat and retreat. Oh, and they almost did it again. And actually, yeah. they gave away far fewer chances than they did against England. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the two things that just that spring to mind just when you were talking there, Rob. This mystique of the Dutch, where where does that come from? They don't want anything in in ten years. I know the, the echoes of that seven style. I think it's style. For, for, I think it's style world. and history. Gary might know be better because of age. And, sorry, I, can't, I feel like I feel really bad. I keep pointing out your age, but I think <laughs> you'll be able to tell I, us did, how, I, I don't know if, if this how is, powerful um, the history was. If this is the World style, Cup of nineteen eighty two or something like that, I, I I get, I get that 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 impression. I know that you listen. They were. They were one of the, the, the favourites for a reason. Um, PSV had won the, the European Cup, of course, and there's, there's PSV players in this team. Um, but as an international side, this this group of players have done nothing. Um, just one point on Ireland, by the way, and I know the World Cup is more romanticised probably because they're, they're out of the group and they get to a quarterfinal and exactly. it's against Italy and blah, blah, blah. Um, this team looks better. To me, I don't know if that's perverse. I know it's only three games. I know it does. It looks worse on paper, better on the pitch. Yeah, I, I, I think they are. I think, look, listen again. Tournament football is a bit, but look, you mentioned that earlier, Gary. Just getting on that run and getting you know penalties against Romania and whatever else, and um, uh, you know, it, 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 tournaments almost like an, an organism of their own. They, they, they just, they just happen and they, they kind of come to life. But I think this is a more impressive tournament performance. Weirdly. I'll just talk a little about the mystique of the Dutch, and I think it is complicated. Um, some of it is is absolutely 
definite and clear. You know, Ajax had that run in the early 70s, winning the European Cup. Feyenoord won it as well. Um, the, the, the Dutch in 74, uh, they lost to West Germany. And in 78, they lost to Argentina. It's no surprise that in England, they garnered some sympathy losing uh, to those two national sides. Um, but there are other things involved, I think, as well. There's the whole kind of iconography of Johan Cruyff, who was a, a ballet dancer on a football field. We, we've never seen anything like him. We didn't get that many chances to see him. But there are also the little things, like in 74, we always talk about the 1970 World Cup as being the first in colour, but a hell of a lot of people did not have colour televisions in yeah. 1970, I'll tell you. In 74, we didn't have one. So we went round to um, my uncle's house and we watched some of the big games in the 74 World Cup in my uncle's house. Now, if you haven't seen much colour telly before, and the Dutch in their orange shirts are running around the way the Dutch did in 74. I was an 11-year-old kid, and believe me, they left an impression on me, the whole kind of glamour and the futurism of, of a huge box of a colour telly and then those uh, orange shirts on it. And I think what what's kind of surprising is that we we knew that, Everybody knew the way Ireland would play. They knew what how they would set up. They knew the whole heart and soul of Jack Charlton's team. And here you have Dutch footballers, the, the sophisticated. They'll give interviews in three different languages, if you like. They're the inheritors of, of Cruyff and others. Um, the total football, whether that's honoured in the breach as much as it is in reality, it doesn't matter because they had a brand and that meant that they had something. So they have a puzzle to solve and they have players who were in a league that was all about solving puzzles, which is Serie A, the most defensive league, the Catanaccios and all of this kind of stuff. Why couldn't they solve that, that puzzle until they score what is both a smart and lucky goal. It's a smart goal because when Kieft has that ball coming to him, he's thinking, what can I do to get a connection on this? And he gets the connection. But it is outrageously lucky because, you know, it, it's it's worn to getting and spins in. Um, you have all these tall players, all these technically gifted players, all these ball players, but you don't try and pass little passes through whatever gaps you can find or lean into centre-halves and get free kicks. You don't try and get crosses into three, four, five uh, forwards uh, or attacking players who are six foot two or over to head the ball in. No, what you do is you, you have a lash from 25 and 30 yards out. It just seems completely bizarre. Um, but then again, the most, icon uh, most iconic goal, which I'm sure we'll talk about at great length in the uh, final edition, the most iconic goal in European Football Championship history was a lash from out, well, not quite outside the box, but it was a lash from 20 yards in Van Basten's famous volley. So it's just a strange thing. They got it over the line and history is written by the winners and the history of this tournament is largely written by the winners. Rob? Yeah, a few, few little things to go. completely agree with all that. I forgot to say Van Basten is miles offside for the goal. Now, mm. in modern football, it's not given because he's not interfering, but in 88, that's offside. Keith himself says he's offside in the story. Um, so that's kind of interesting. He's offside not when Keith heads it, but when Kuban shot yeah. him into Brown. Yeah. 
But it's quite interesting. The stuff about the forwards, which just looked perverse, didn't work for Louis van Gaal. You've often spoken to me about this, Gary, about how certain great teams, particularly English teams, actually, get a lot of players in the box. And actually, if you look, when Koeman hits the volley, it's 4v4, the width of the six-yard box. Now, generally, it's about 8v5 in the box, but it's 4v4. So they're, they're kind of giving themselves a chance with all these big lumps. Um, and yet, Paradox Van Hal was slaughtered for it. So, you know, um, two other things. The game ends with a long throw from Mick McCarthy being headed away at the near post by Rude Hullet. Like, what kind of European championship is this? <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, there was a weird thing before half time. I don't know if you noticed this. So, Chris Morris, the island right back, gets elbowed in the face by Owen Kuman, not deliberately, just a, a challenge. Uh, ball goes upfield, comes back, and then Morris just goes down holding his face, basically. Um, referee just plays on. He's on he's on the edge of the island area, hold face down, holding his face. Referee's not interested. Um, like I'd imagine clearly concussed. He goes off at half time in the end. So this is quite close to half time, replaced by Sheedy. McGraw goes to right back, which has an influence in a strange way, because McGraw's header is the one that goes to Kuman. Albeit it's a good header, nothing wrong with it. But I kind of thought that was it. I mean, imagine now if a player's face down with a head injury and play goes on. Yeah. The poor referee would be sacked by the morning. Um, absolutely commonplace. Tired. Absolutely <laughs> commonplace then. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Tired header, Rob. I don't think yeah, it was. I mean, possibly. Yeah, you might be right. Such a rear guard. And this was a fluke. You might be right. You might be right. It was a fluky goal. But there's just this, such a rear guard action. I think they're just exhausted. He might be has right. probably too much space, really. To you know, yeah, he's taken he's taken the chance. He's gambled, uh, and you're right. The the by the the literal at the time um, that there could have been an offside flag. I don't think the offside flags were, were really working in this just to whatsoever. Well, I, I think they, they, they maybe forgotten them. It's um, amazing. Ju- the just just one, and I know this is a, a running obsession. Um, pronunciation of household names. Um, um, by, <laughs> by Martin Tyler here, um, uh, Pat Boner. Now, that, that may actually well be the, the uh, maybe the right pronunciation, um, but of course, the, the the common usage would be Boner and and Erwin and Ronald Kuman. Um, not not the, the 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 emphasis on on, on the coup. Um, again, these players are not. Wallpaper exactly. household names that everybody's familiar with, um, and just that 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 jarring kind of introduction and 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 kind of grappling in the dark with some of these names that, um, you know, commentators now would be all over, absolutely all over. How do how do you pronounce that? Um, how how's that that done in South Korea? Blah blah blah. Um, it's just uh, it the, the buff is yet to come of 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 the modern game, but it's 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 been it's been conceived oh, here. Right. Yeah. I, I, I just want to move us towards an end game in this episode by returning to my point about thwarted expectations driving the ire of England fans. Of course, it was the exact opposite in Ireland. Expectations were low. Um, certainly, there's any amount of condescension in the England press about sort of plucky underdogs and all this kind of stuff, and there was no need for that condescension. These were, were good players, but they weren't in the first rank of international football so enormous credit goes to Jack Charlton but they were received by 250,000 people at I think Croke Park in in Dublin as absolute heroes Jack Charlton became a, a, a genuinely loved national figure in in Ireland it wasn't just for this tournament but it was certainly the start of that uh, ocean of of goodwill that uh, 
that he he swam in uh, for the rest of his life, uh, and still does to to this day in memoriam, um, which just goes to show that you can lose and you can lose, and the narratives can be very different. Rob, one really quick thing, you're right. The reception they received was obviously incredible, and there's a lovely line in the Guardian from an island fan who was at it, which sums up both the way their fans looked at that campaign, but also the nature of tournament football. So uh, the guy or lady, I don't know, says, we won a game we should have lost, we drew a game we should have won, and we lost a game we should have drawn. Obviously in chronological order, that's England, USSR, right. uh, Holland. I, th- I thought that was actually just such a neat summation of the variables of tournament football and also obviously what happened to Ireland in that summer. And all delivered in a compressed two-week uh, two-week tournament. It's uh, It's... <laughs> It's hard to believe now, doesn't it? Was it two weeks or was it three weeks? I think it was two it weeks. It was two right? weeks, but it would have been seven days, Ireland, from Sunday yeah. to Saturday for yeah. three group games. Well, um, I'll just come to you, gentlemen, for any closing thoughts. Uh, uh, Martin. Uh, n- none from me. Um, some laugh that we thought, did we have enough to talk about this? this much? <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Three of the four games are stinkers, aren't they, really? Yeah. Because two of them are kind of dead. You know who's going to win. West Germany take care of Spain pretty easily. It's only real, but obviously there's always something to talk about. Yeah, there's always something to talk about. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, well, even the dogs. Even the dogs have plenty yeah. to talk yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> Margot's very strong podcast debut. It's been a pleasure. Who would you then, if, if you're trying to uh, look at that. You, you're looking ahead. You're 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 young again. You're here. Um, you're, you're back in the summer 1988. These groups are finished. Who's looking the favourites here? Because it's it's certainly not the Dutch. And in, in in my opinion, I I think West Germany and the Soviet Union um, to me look just like they're on a roll. They have momentum. There's a lot of verve about the play. Um, I don't know. Yes, yeah, you make case for all of them or none of them. I know, I know what you mean. I think the, the British press actually were, as you said earlier, were really seduced by Italy. A lot, hell of a lot of people fancied them. I yeah. think. Do you, any, well, I, do, do you remember what you thought at the time? Well, try to think what I thought at the time. I think possibly swayed by the in-game, and but I don't think I was alone in this. You'd be saying the Dutch have still got a bit in hand here. If Van Basten turns it on again, if Hullet is the player that he was flagged to be, this Rijkaard's decent at the back as well. You're thinking they have the highest ceiling. But I'm pretty sure from pillar to post in Germany, 80% of people would expect Germany to win. What? Yeah, and what I would say is that there's a recurring theme in the British press about the old cliche about West Germany easing into tournaments. And that's interesting because at that stage there isn't, that much precedent for it, obviously 54 and 74 to an extent. But anyway, so the semi-finals are on the Tuesday night, West Germany v Netherlands, a reasonably loaded game, and uh, on the Wednesday, Soviet Union v uh, Italy. And we'll come to that with a slightly different team in the next episode of the Nessendorma podcast. I can thank Rob Smythe. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much. I can thank Martin Ramsey. Thank you, Martin. Cheers, boys. Cheers, listeners, for getting through to the end. And I was, (laughs) I was, for at least some of the time, your host, Gary Mayer. Thank you very much.